Welcome to the Abnormal Psychology Podcast, hosted by yours, ghoulie, Dr. Colby Taylor. Hi, everybody. This is a special Halloween episode. This is Dr. Colby Taylor, um, a psychologist and associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee. And at CBU, at Christian Brothers University, we are on fall break this week, which means I get to record another podcast for you. And I'm recording this in the second week of October. And since it's October, it's officially spooky season. And I thought I would dedicate this podcast to a wide range of psychological issues um, relating to Halloween. So I used to have a personality podcast um, like two years ago when I was teaching personality. I did 10 episodes and I dedicated an episode in that personality podcast to Halloween. And I thought, you know, it's spooky season. People's Halloween decorations are starting to come out. I was driving through the neighborhood the other day, and uh, one of our neighbors actually built like a full-scale pirate ship in their front yard, uh, which is insane that they have that much time to do it. I saw all this lumber and wood, and I was like, what are they doing? And five hours later, there's a full-fledged pirate ship in their yard. So Halloween decorations are going up, and uh, I thought I would do this episode on Halloween-related psychological stuff. And so the first thing I sort of want to talk about is, and I'm going to term this fall fetishism. Um, So we'll talk about fall fetishism. We'll talk about turning into a werewolf in this episode, which I think is really interesting, or thinking that you're turning into a werewolf, I should say. We'll talk about trick-or-treating a little bit, um, and then we'll talk about the Salem witch trials. So we're going to touch on a huge uh, range of issues. Um, Should be fun, should be exciting. Um, The first thing I want to talk about, though, is fall fetishism. Um, It seems like in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, there's been this huge movement to uh, make fall sort of a a standalone holiday, right? We get these pumpkin spice lattes. Um, It seems like they're pushing Halloween candy and fall decor in the stores, you know, right after 4th of July. Um, And my theory is that the more we get away from autumnal weather, like legitimate fall um, climate, the more artificial we make sort of the fall season, the more artificial we make Halloween. I sort of saw this in Hawaii, right? The the climate in Hawaii is really, really consistent. Highs are in like the 70s or 80s all year round. You don't really get the changing of the leaves like you do um, in New England. Um, And it seemed like that uh, there was this artificial fall that was created, right? Uh, Everybody went to Starbucks to get their pumpkin spice drinks. And Halloween decorations were probably more over the top um, than you have here on the mainland. And so I'm wondering with like climate change and everything, here in Memphis, the the high today is like 82 degrees. Doesn't really feel like fall. So maybe the more we move away from like having legitimate fall, the more artificial we're making sort of the fall season. I don't know. I'm interested to hear people's thoughts on this, but I'm officially terming this fall fetishism uh, because, you know, Hallmark movies, Lifetime movies, um, all of this commercialism that's going into fall, I think is super interesting, super basic, right? Um, You know, the basic, uh, I don't know, PSL lingo thing. I have no idea. Uh, my conspiracy theory is that this is being fueled by big coffee. So like Duncan and Starbucks probably have a vested interest in pushing this artificial fall stuff. Let's switch gears to werewolves. 
Um, and there's a psychological term, psychiatric term, relating to thinking that you might be turning into a werewolf. And this is called clinical lycanthropism. So lycanthropy is turning into a werewolf. And apparently the term clinical and clinical lycanthropism is used to distinguish it from acute lycanthropy. Um, so clinical means that you psychologically think that you're an animal, whereas acute lycanthropy would be apparently actually turning into an animal. And this goes all the way back to ancient Greece and maybe even before ancient Greece, but at least in ancient Greece, we had kynanthropy. And kynanthropy is where people thought they were turning into dogs. So kynan sort of sounds like canine, right? And it's a sort of shape-shifting. Clinical lycanthropism, even though it te technically means like turning into a werewolf, has evolved into basically describing any delusion where people think they're turning into an animal. And so it's technically therianthropy. Therianthropy would be more correct. Therianthropy describes turning into any animal. Um, so that would be more correct than lycanthropy, which would just be turning into a werewolf. But today we use the term clinical lycanthropy to describe turning into any animal. Um, I've also seen the term uh, clinical zoanthropy used to. So clinical zoanthropy, um, therianthropy, and lycanthropy are all sort of meaning the same things these days. Um, and there are a group of people who claim to be therians when I was doing research for this episode. Um, that like sort of like how you can claim a gender identity, you should also be able to claim a species identity. And apparently like Therianism has even evolved into sort of a diversity issue. And I'm not so sure with Therians whether most of these people just identify with a certain species or whether they actually have a delusion that they're that species. And this delusional aspect is super, super rare. A 2014 paper by Jan Dirkblom found less than 20 documented cases since 1850, so possibly as few as 13 cases over 162 years. Uh, hundreds of years ago, if you acted like an animal, you might be tried as a witch and executed. And I'll talk about witches later in this episode. Uh, 50 years ago, if you acted like an animal, you might experience electroconvulsive therapy. And today, you'd probably be treated with an antipsychotic. So what's going on here? Um, psychosis, a break with reality. Psychosis is one of the more agreed upon explanations. Um, psychosis due to substance use, due to traumatic brain injury, due to dementia, or just due to some unexplained cause um, might be leading to this lycanthropy. Uh, there have been neuroimaging studies, which obviously have really small ends, really small number of participants due to the extreme rarity of this condition. Um, these neuroimaging studies find the primary and secondary somatosensory cort cortices are involved. Um, so psychosis seems to be a reasonable explanation, and specifically psychosis involving depersonalization. And I guess you could even hypothesize that this might be related to like dissociative identity disorder, um, but the, the depersonalization here is with a non-human alter. Um, others describe it as sort of a variation on body dysmorphic disorder, which BDD is a, a, an obsessive compulsive and related disorder. And this severe form of BDD might involve what we call somatic hallucinations. So in the Jan Blum paper, he describes people seeing the face of a wolf in a mirror, um, feeling like their mouth and teeth have been altered to become wolf-like, or feeling like they have increased hair growth, or that they're growing claws which we could term these somatic hallucinations. 
Again, these are delusions. They're not related to legitimate medical conditions that involve hirsutism. So um, hirsutism is where you're actually experiencing increased body hair growth. So we have psychotic and maybe dysmorphic explanations. Um, still others, and especially uh, psychoanalysts, believe that lycanthropism, in some cases, is a sort of displaced sexual thing. That people with lycanthropism might be using their zoological identity issues to cover up sexual attractions or tendencies that aren't accepted in their cultures. So, to sum things up, clinical lycanthropism is extremely, extremely rare. It's a unicorn diagnosis. Um, but I actually didn't encounter any cases of people thinking there were unicorns when I was researching this. Uh, but I did find cases of people thinking that they're dogs, um, frogs, even bees, or oxen. Um, and in the handful of cases that have been documented, it's probably some type of psychosis that's responsible. Um, history nerd time. King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of ancient Babylon, one of the kings of ancient Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar might have had clinical lycanthropism. Um, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, uh, according to the biblical book of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar started acting like an ox, which is specifically called boranthropy. Um, I didn't, or boanthropy. Um, I'd never seen this term boanthropy before because it's so hyper specific and a super rare thing. Um, but he started acting like an ox, boanthropy. And interestingly enough, he started crawling around and eating grass for seven years um, until he repented. And then the, I guess, delusion left him. All right. So that's clinical lycanthropy. Super, super fascinating, but also really, really rare. Let's shift topics to trick-or-treating. Um, I really, really like candy. I'm going to take my kids trick-or-treating in a couple weeks. Um, I know my daughter Emerson, my three-year-old, she's going to dress like Princess Elsa from Frozen. Um, I don't know what my one-year-old Rowan is going to dress as. Um, Emerson wants him to dress as Olaf, you know, the little snowman from Frozen. But I haven't really found a good Olaf costume for, for um, Rowan. And Rowan's probably like too young to eat most candy. So I'm definitely going to be reaching into their candy bags and sort of taking my dad tax. Um, but anyways, I know in taking my kids trick-or-treating and in trick-or-treating myself when I was a kid, um, there are people that leave bowls of candy on their porch. And usually there's a sign next to the bowl of candy that says, take one piece. And inevitably, you'll have kids that just take as much candy as they can. Uh, I was never one of those kids. Um, I was such a goody-goody as a kid. So I would see a bowl of candy that was out and that sign, take one piece. And I would take just one piece. So it's such a goody-goody. Maybe I'll talk about like how well-behaved I was as a kid and how that might have even been psychopathological in another episode. I went like years in elementary school without pulling a card or signing a book or having any sort of disciplinary action. So it's like super quiet. Um, and I don't know, I probably had some sort of anxiety disorder leading to that perfectionism. Anyways, one of my uh, favorite studies on trick-or-treating um, was by Diener, and it took place in Seattle, Washington in 1976. And it looked at trick-or-treaters through, there was a person that would open the door when trick-or-treaters would come. And this person would set down a bowl of candy or a bowl of pennies. And then that person would say to the trick-or-treaters, I have something to do in another room, just take one. And the person would close the door, turn around and walk out. In one condition that was called the anonymous condition, the person answering the door would allow the kids to leave their masks on, would just put down the bowl of candy or the bowl of pennies, 
close the door and walk back to the back room. In another condition, um, kids were asked to take off their masks. They were asked what their names were. And some were even asked where they live, which is super, super cre creepy. And that's like way too invasive questioning. Um, uh, before they turned around and went to the back room. And this was the non-anonymous condition. And there was also a third condition. So the person would open the door and they would ask one kid from a group of trick-or-treaters to remove their mask. And they told that kid they would be responsible for everybody else in the group only taking one piece of candy or one penny. And this was called the altered responsibility condition. So in the non-anonymous condition, where kids were asked to take off their mask, ask their names, ask where they lived in some cases. Um, kids that were trick-or-treating alone uh, were not very likely to take more than one piece of candy. Only 7.5% of those kids took more than one piece of candy or one penny. But when there was a group of kids in the non-anonymous condition, the number of kids taking more than one piece of candy tripled to 20.8%. Now, the anonymous condition. The anonymous condition was where kids were um, allowed to keep on their mask and the person just basically put the bowl of candy down, said take one piece, and then walked away. Um, when kids were trick-or-treating alone and allowed to keep on their mask, 21.4% took more than one piece of candy. So that's three times as many as in the non-anonymous condition. And when a group of kids were trick-or-treating together in the anonymous condition, over half, 57.2% of kids, took more than one piece of candy. Finally, in the altered responsibility condition, where only one kid was asked to remove their mask and was told they were supposed to be responsible for everybody else in the group, 27.3% of kids took more than one piece of candy. So to sum things up, the kids that were most likely to take more than one piece of candy were those that were anonymous, they were allowed to wear their masks, and those that were trick-or-treating in a group. Man, kids are kids are pack animals. Um, if the purge ever goes down, it's probably going to be masked people in groups. And this highlights the social psychology concept of de-individuation. So de-individuation is the loosening of social norms and roles that occurs when you're anonymous and part of a large group. So sort of in the words of Eminem the rapper, um, not the, the candy that you might take more than one piece of if you're trick-or-treating. The words of Eminem, you kind of lose yourself you start raging with everybody else. Um, this is probably how like mosh pits start at punk rock, con uh, punk rock concert. I've never been to a punk rock concert before, but I imagine people like de-individualize there. And anyways, um, there are some little tricks you can do if you're lazy and you just want to leave a bowl of candy out on your porch. Um, you can put a mirror by the candy bowl. Uh, people are less likely to disobey rules when they're watching themselves in the mirror. Um, you can also add a picture of eyeballs above the candy bowl or even fake eyeballs, uh, and these can reduce transgressions. Um, there have been studies that show that pictures of eyes posted above sinks and bathrooms can increase hand-washing behaviors. All right. Another topic I want to cover in this Halloween episode is the Salem witch trials. Um, could there have been a psychological cause for the Salem witch trials back in the 1690s? Um, it's possible that there was mass hysteria or mass psychosis. And some of this mass psychosis could have had like a biological explanation. Um, some of it could have, had, could have been caused by ergot poisoning. Um, ergot is a fungus. Um, and specifically, they could have ingested ergot through um, fungus from grain. 
Uh, so um, having grain-based beer, having grain-based uh, bread or whatever, um, maybe they got ergot poisoning. And there's a few different explanations here regarding ergot or regarding mass psychosis. Um, there could have been ergot poisoning among the people accused of witchcraft. Uh, they could have started acting differently. Um, maybe even having seizures from the ergot. And this difference in behavior might have been interpreted as supernatural. Um, this also could have possibly had some sort of psychological contagion added in. So maybe there were some elements of mass psychosis here. Another explanation is that the accusers of witches could have ha also had ergot poisoning. Um, the accusers might have been unduly paranoid, which I think is super, super interesting. Um, ergot poisoning or mass hysteria might also have been responsible for one of my favorite historical events, um, which is the Dancing Plague of 1518, which took place in France, in which possibly like dozens of people danced themselves to death. Um, the Dancing Plague of 1518 sounds super, super awesome. The final thing in this episode I wanted to touch on was beliefs in ghosts and beliefs in demons. So I don't know if I mentioned this in a previous episode, but apparently my lake house is haunted. Um, so that sounds super bougie that we have a lake house. We don't. We actually have sort of like a timeshare. We're a member of a lake club um, about an hour away from Memphis. And there's probably 20 other people that share this house. But we're some of the only people that stay the night at this house, even though there's probably 10 beds in the whole house. Um, and one of the reasons behind this is that people are scared of the ghost that supposedly lives there. So the lake house was built um, uh, the same year the Titanic sunk, which I guess is 1912. So I think we just had our 110th anniversary of the lake house. So lots of history there. Lots of making of a good ghost story. Um, it's also super isolated, sort of out in the middle of nowhere on a lake. Um, there's old pictures and stuff throughout the house. Uh, it's just, you get sort of this semi-creepy historical vibe when you're staying the night there. I think it's pretty awesome. Um, but specifically, there's at least one ghost um, named Brenda that supposedly haunts the house. Uh, and Brenda was a caretaker of the house not too long ago, um, back in 2001. And uh, because the, the location was so isolated, she became kind of depressed. Um, and... Uh, she, she was an artist. Um, there's a painting by Brenda that's above the, um, uh, one of the bathrooms in the house. And so she started experiencing, uh, increasing feelings of isolation. And then, uh, September 11th, 2001 happened. And apparently, um, this sort of center over the edge was the, the straw that proverbially broke the camel's back. And she tragically committed suicide on the third floor of the lake house. And a lot of people claim to, to see Brenda. Um, uh, looking out the windows of the house, or people have even woken up in the middle of the night. She's been standing over the bed. And because a lot of the members were, you know, around to have known Brenda, because she only lived you know, 20 years ago, um, they were able to, like, positively identify her. Um, there's some other people that have seen, you know, older ghosts from, I guess, 100 years ago in the house. But Brenda uh, is by far the uh, the most commonly seen ghost, which I think is interesting. I don't like staying in the house alone. Um, it does kind of creep me out. I've heard sounds and things I can't explain. I've never seen her, never woken up and had her standing over the bed like other people have. Um, uh, there have been some things I can't explain, though. Like, because 20 people share the house, people have, like, different lockers with padlocks on them. We've walked in the house before, and, like, all the padlocks have been undone. Um, you have no idea how that could have happened. So, anyways, kind of creepy. 
Um, I'm not one to completely rule out the existence of ghosts, uh, but belief in the paranormal, so seeing ghosts or demonic possessions, um, or thinking that you have ESP, are these diagnosable? The ESP thing actually comes up um, in the uh, diagnostic criteria um, for, uh, what is it, schizotypal personality disorder. I am pretty sure that belief in ESP is in schizotypal personality disorder. Uh, but seeing ghosts or demonic possessions, are, are, are they diagnosable or are they cultural expressions that shouldn't be diagnosed? This is sort of uh, getting into religion a little bit. Or maybe, you know, they're legitimate people. You know, there's legitimate cases of ghosts or demonic possessions. Um, like I said, I don't mess around with ghosts or demons. Um, and sure, there are probably hundreds of cases historically when we didn't have a good grasp of mental health and we ascribe people's legitimate psychological conditions as having paranormal origins. But does this explain all cases? And what about contemporary cases? Um, polls consistently document that between 20 and 40% of Americans believe in ghosts. And the percentage of Americans believing in demons tends to mirror that, so about a third of Americans. Anyways, I find this really fascinating. Um, I'm one that, you know, I, I don't know that all cases of thinking that you're seeing ghosts or demonic possessions you know, should be diagnosed. There might be some cases where it's clearly delusional or there's hallucinations that are happening, uh, but I think that might even be the minority of cases. Okay, my own werewolves are starting to howl in the background. I don't know if you hear Shadow and Gertie, my dogs howling in the background. So it's probably about time to wrap this Halloween episode up. So let's go to the mailbag. And you can always send me mailbag requests for episodes, questions, comments, hate mail, compliments to ctaylo 41 at cbu.edu. I've gotten a few mailbag emails since the last episode that I'll need to cover in future episodes, but I picked one from the mailbag to cover today, and this is from Amanda. And Amanda says, hello, Dr. Taylor. At the end of your episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, you invited listeners to chime in with their experiences of misophonia. And I'd like to take you up on that offer. Um, I'm currently a doctoral candidate in EdPsych, and much of my research involves risk factors and academic outcomes. Of course, a history of psychological condition is a risk factor for poor academic performance. Um, so I've learned a little bit about various mental health conditions over the last few years. And you mentioned that misophonia is a more recently identified condition. And I first came across the term just a few years ago in my research. Having read quite a bit about it, I self-diagnosed myself with having a mild case of it. It does make sense that it is correlated with other conditions, as I do have formal diagnoses of ADHD. Uh, you talked about particular sounds like chewing gum or keyboard tappity-tappity noises, which are the worst, she says, or animals grooming themselves. Um, and I, she says, I have to regularly ask my dogs to postpone personal bath time for later when I'm not around. My wife does the exact same thing, Amanda. Uh, she goes on, I had one classmate who would sit next to me in class and would eat carrots during lectures. I could just hear the sound of crunching carrots. I mean, it was the worst semester of my life. And that is all I can remember about that class. Those ASMR videos you talked about, man alive. I salute whoever can watch those without crying. Spoons clinking on the side of a glass, water pouring into a container, snoring, slamming doors. All these noises seem to bring out a monster in my mind. Amanda, you describe those in a super visceral way. I think I could experience a physiological reaction to thinking about spoons clinking, clinking on glasses there. Um, anyways, I do enjoy your podcast and I'm often prompted to imagine myself writing to you regarding your podcast topics, but I never was quite motivated enough to do so until today. 
I'm not sure if you were aware, but I found it a bit of iron. I found a bit of irony in this episode. You see, or should I say, you hear during that recording something kept tapping or bumping into the microphone, or perhaps a table upon which your microphone rests, and it does rest on a table. Um, even now and then, there would be loud bumping noises, a plastic item, uh, contact like making noise, perhaps a pen in your hand, perhaps your hand coming down onto the table to make a point to an audience you can't see. And I absolutely gesticulate when I'm talking for emphasis. I don't know. Um, but we can hear you. And I found the irony. Oh, there was a sound right there. I have my, my desk is a mess, by the way. So I feel like you probably hear crinkling of paper. And in my gesticulating, sometimes I sideswipe the microphone with my hand. And I apologize for those sorts of things. If my editing was better, um, I would probably be able to edit it out. Anyways, I found the irony that I seem to focus in, in and dwell on those sounds whenever they would happen. And I might just be grumpy about those. Um, I, I might just be grumpy uh, or those who are afflicted with misophonia, uh, misophonia might be more inclined to pick up on these things. So um, I have noticed that in going back and listening to episodes, uh, Amanda. Um, it's something I'll try to do a better job of. Right now my kids are making noises in the background. Emerson was given a toy guitar um, over the weekend, uh, which I'm not super happy about because it is absolutely obnoxious. Um, the dogs are starting to bark. I don't know if you can hear that. So there's all sorts of uh, cacophony in the Taylor household. Amanda closes, regardless, I especially enjoyed this Labor Day episode as I can commiserate. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your email, Amanda. And again, you can send mailbag requests, emails to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. So I'm going to go back into the noise, the cacophony, uh, cacophony, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard that, that word pronounced before. Um, but I do hear the guitar playing in the background uh, from my daughter, my three-year-old. I hear the dogs barking. So I'm going to go back to being a father and enjoying my fall break. So until the next episode, take care, stay well. And if you don't listen to another before Halloween, happy Halloween.